from 11FS, I'm Lida Glyptis and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you Robinhood traders find infinite leverage glitch, digital banks grow as fintech funding slows, and Westpac announces banking as a service platform. All this and much more on today's show. But before we get started, 11FS are taking part in the 2020 British Bank Awards and we need your help to win. We took home 2019's Consultancy of the Year earlier this year, and we would love to get it again for a second year running. Not just that, we're also taking part in the new award category, Pioneer of the Year. So if you love the work we do, head over to bit.ly slash 11FS2020 and nominate 11FS for the Consultancy and Pioneer Awards. It would mean the world to us. Okay, let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode 373 of Fintech Insider. Today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Adam Davis. How are you doing today, Adam? I am very well. How are you? I haven't seen you in like three months and today I see you twice. I know. Double Davis. <laughs> this is a... Uh, it's my lucky day. Quite the day. As always, we're not alone. We're joined by some awesome guests making their Fintech Insider debut. We have Jasper Martin, CMO at Pension B. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being on the show. Francesca Carlesi, co-founder and CEO at Molo Finance. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. And making our welcome return, we have Ryan Edwards Pritchard, fintech nomad and friend of the show. And I hope I do not threaten to kill you on this one. How are you today, Ryan? Already feeling threatened. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show, guys. Okay, let's get started. The first story is from The Guardian. MPs urge refunds for victims of bank transfer fraud. A report from the Commons Treasury Committee says financial companies should repay thousands of customers who've been defrauded since 2016. It also says retailers should reimburse customers and cover the cost of new bank cards when fraud happens. Other recommendations include a mandatory 24-hour delay on first-time payments between accounts. Um, the report comes after official data showed that scammers stole $616 million from UK bank customers in the first half of 2019. What do you think, guys? Do these recommendations focus on compensation at the expense of prevention? Uh, <laughs> I guess to start with, it, it feels somewhat archaic and regressive. Um, there is absolutely no doubt, 100%, we need to take fraud seriously and we need to provide better support for victims. Um, but at the same time, you know, as we go through the analog to digital uh, world and we've gone from checks to FPS, you know, fraudsters have unfortunately found loopholes uh, and they've exposed uh, and, and they continue to expose them. Going backwards um, to seven days, I mean, we might as well just go back to paper-based and posting it. It just seems mental to me to be to be making those steps. Um, there's there's some interesting solutions out there. I think you know, in terms of the UK, we've always been pioneers uh, in the financial services space. And I know one space that still uh, is left open for us is looking at identity and what we can do in terms of infrastructure in that perspective. And I think that's a huge opportunity for financial services. Uh, in terms of infrastructure players to come in and actually close the gap on that. And there is kind of an argument of both sides that financial service players need to look at the uh, the infrastructure and and maintenance of that. And at the same time, you know, they do need to do uh, their work with the actual consumers themselves in terms of education. But education will only go so far in terms of stopping the fraudsters uh, for taking advantage of them. Yeah, I was going to say, I think um, it's quite interesting because you've got uh, – these specific, I guess, uh, rules and regulations 
look to almost penalise companies to go back dating to 2016. That seems quite punitive if you think about, um, you know, a potential punishment that can uh, result from making this a mandatory uh, set of laws. Um, and I would say also, I, mean, I think if you look at confirmation of pay, which I think or I believe was supposed to be around last year, but hasn't hasn't yet um, come to the fold, it's going to increase friction as it is in terms of making first payments or making payments without actually setting up using 2FA, whatever it might be. So I think there's a um, there's a question mark here around making these mandatory um, or mandatory and then actually, you know, having significant, I guess, steps and significant um, uh, issues around, you know, being able to make seamless payments, especially first off the bat. Yeah, fully agree. Uh, I think I would also add that as it happened in the past, I mean, this feels a little bit asymmetric, right, vis-a-vis between banks and other companies because at the end, all the burden keeps being put on, on banks to fix problems that might be generated, not in their system in the first place. So I think, at, and actually this happened already in the past, so in a way it could feel... I agree, it feels a little bit obsolete, everything, but also, you know, why don't we do something about retailers and all the people that actually uh, cause this fraud, right? They should also pr- improve the protection, the data protection, the cybersecurity, because it feels like the banking system has already been kind of going through a lot. Uh, and if you keep doing that, I don't think this the model would be um, sustainable. It, it's it's a very good point. Are we focusing on the right things? Are we no. also sort of admitting a little bit of defeat because to to your point Ryan we got given something better than this people got used to faster payments people got used to believing that it is possible and real and on average pretty safe and by going back to anything between 24 hour and week long checks are we essentially saying we don't know how to make it scalable and safe? It is not true, actually. We can. So is this a bit of lazy legislation? There have been a couple of interesting comments. Um, Anne Bowden, CEO and founder of Starling, um, stated on Twitter, consumers and businesses need real-time payments. This recommendation is not going to help stop fraud and it will delay essential banking. That's right. I think it, it, if you look at uh, if you look what you can see in terms of the measures they're taking, for me it feels like just, you know, the tap's leaking. Mm-hmm. Let's just mop it up as yeah. much as possible so well. it doesn't really look... Uh, if that, but the underlying problem is actually fixing the tap. And I don't think that's happening here at all. And that's something you often see in other areas of the financial services. Um, the initial thing is, to, well, in this case, delaying payments or going back to the Stone Age. But it's is not it, necessarily you, solving the issue here, right? That's right. Do you have this image in your head of people going, quick, Bobby, get it printed out and look at it because what else are you doing with that mm. 24 hours to 7 days and i i have memories of a lot of these checks being done manually particularly wow. for big ticket items in corporate banking i mean you you have this shiny infrastructure in mind but actually it's like james the intern sitting down there with a printout what is it hmm. that is being done in those 24 hours to 7 days you know what I mean? <laughs> I, don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think. I don't think. I think it's a great question because yeah. the truth is, well, at least from my experience so far, I mean, there's this psychological effect that people think, okay, when you do things, you have more time, you do things manually, it's safer. But actually, my experience is the opposite. I mean, when you do automatic checks and all these, actually more robust because if you do have a person looking at that, it's probably this prone to much more human error. So I don't know what you do in those 24 hours, but the real question is what 
what could be an alternative solution then, right? Because definitely we all agree it doesn't seem like this is mm. the way forward, but the technology we have today could actually be used to, to, to improve the level of checks you can do. You can use AI, you can do all sorts of things in data triangulation that... I mean, that doesn't that take seven days. It doesn't take seven days and probably is the right place to invest, right? I Absolutely. See, I can see banks looking at this and thinking, oh, like we've just spent all this time trying to, you know, obviously get into the FPS system and we spent all this time trying to do real time and now actually there's new laws come out which means we've got to reverse all that. They'd just be like, crikey, O'Reilly. Because this is going to cost a lot of money should it, should it ever become law. Mm. Is it also that some banks are simply not able to... Um, you know, take the right measures to to, to combat that fraud. And actually, mm. you know, we still have the fax machines uh, on the on the office floor. Let's just reuse them again. While other banks, and we've seen, for example, recently with the likes of Monzo, where they probably have a much better technology stack, so they can identify fraud cases much easier, much quicker. They might have less issues with that, but the old, not all the banks are ready. I don't know. It's a, it's a good point, and and for our listeners, in case you have been on holiday or sleeping under a rock, fraud and crime prevention is a hot topic. Obviously, the BBC's watchdog program ran an expose on Monzo's AML practices, trying to single them out as abnormal. Tom Blobfield came on last week's show right here in the studio with us um, and addressed the criticism. He reckons only five percent of cases are questionable. Ninety five percent are, in his words, definitely criminals. To your point, and feel free to jump in and, and, and comment on, on this statement, um, not not just mine, but Tom's <laughs> as well. To your point, if the regulator has been pushing banks to do better with the technology we know works, isn't this the exact opposite of what the last 10 years of regulatory reform have been about? Mm. Oh, oh, poor you, you can't cope. Well, well, let's go back to paper yeah. because you know how to do that. It's not just about that, though. I think the interesting thing in terms of your point there, Jasper, was the fraudsters are actually targeting the consumers themselves. So as much as you can actually you know, regulate the actual infrastructure, the problem that you've got is people are actually going after, you know, and unfortunately... Someone, I don't even want to say naive people, actually, because there was a case, I think it was just, uh, what was it, back in September, Helen Skeleton. Is it Helen Skeleton? Helen Skeleton? The bit, the, uh, I'm going to go with Peter. not skeleton. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> She's the Blue Peter, <laughs> Blue Peter uh, presenter. But she, she went public in terms of the fact that um, she was duped out of 70K of her savings. You know, mm-hmm. So it's, mm. it's not just the old and you know, the vulnerable here. It's, mm. you know, it, it's quite sophisticated people who are getting... Uh, duped in various different ways. And in her case, um, she actually got a call where she thought it was a bank getting in touch. The number looked legit. You know, and she gave all the details over. So they're constantly actually finding loopholes and ways to actually take advantage of people. When a complete stranger calls you and asks you to identify yourself and disclose all your passwords, don't do it, boys and girls. Right, moving on. The next story is from Bloomberg. Robinhood traders find infinite leverage glitch. The app let Robinhood Gold users trade stocks with excess borrowed funds, basically giving them access to free money for a while. Robinhood has allegedly added the value of covered calls incorrectly. The more money a customer borrows, the more money the app lends them for future trading. One user on Reddit's Wall Street Bets forum claimed they took a $1 million position on a $4,000 deposit. Solid. <laughs> <laughs> what could possibly go wrong with that? Robinhood says it is, and I quote, aware of the isolated situations and communicating directly with customers. Um, if Reddit activity is anything to go by, they're not so isolated. Um, what do we think of this? Did anyone see Twitter's game on this when it came out? There was like no. Kevin Costner all over my feed <laughs> as Robin. It was, it was amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, the social has reacted really strongly to it. It was... Um, 
it's 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 crazy. I mean, it's it's more actually. Um, it's almost a shame that it looks like the actual traders themselves are going to get hit with this because that's who, um, in theory, it's it's being classed, I guess, as security fraud um, or securities fraud. But I mean, it's it's absolutely mad. I mean, to, for Robinhood to actually allow this or for there to be a glitch like this is um, says something about user testing. It, it well, does. it's an interesting one, Red, because it. The activity out there is like, what the hell happened? And quite a few people are like, haha, I told you so. Because yeah. the whole gamification yeah. of the process has not been met with support. So, Ryan, I totally talked over the you there. No, don't be silly. I, mean, I, was, I was just going to say on Adam's point there, in terms of going after the individuals themselves, a lot of that actually depends on the age. And to your point there, you know, Robin Hood's made a product specifically for unsophisticated users. Um, you know, they've then given out uh, a capability to do options trade in two, you know, unsophisticated said users, and it's quite a complex financial product, and they screw up risk management, you know, uh, and, you know, these users then take advantage in terms of the various different positions. The interesting thing is actually giving more about looking at the users themselves in terms of age, you know, do that, you know, if they're falling under 18, you know, do they then actually fall under the same rules? You know, if we're led to believe, you know, these are really young users who are being brought into this. It's a good point, but if they are of age, they could be looking at accusations of fraud, definitely um, impact on their credit rating, and massive personal debts. What consequences could or should Robinhood face for this glitch? Well, in a way, I mean, if you're, I think they should face some consequences because at the end they are they made this platform available. They, I mean, if you, when the moment you make something available for consumers, you are responsible for you know, protecting them. And that is kind of, before it becomes regulation, is a ethical kind of norm, right? And we've seen a lot a lot of things went wrong in the banking industry in the past that maybe there was not a specific regulation, but if you go in gray areas, then something happens. So I think they should face some consequences. And I think that's, um, at the end, yeah, I mean, users, they always do everything they can with what they're given, right? So that's how you should test it. I'd love to know what happened to the person yeah. who actually had that one million position on the <laughs> foreground and whether they actually <laughs> lost it all or not. I'd love to know the person who was the head of UX. Yeah, yeah, good, Could they yeah. withdraw those funds? <laughs> yeah, the question is, is their head of UX now the, the, the hottest property in the market or desperately looking mm. for a new job? Good question, good question. I think when you are developing a financial product... Um, you go hopefully through lots of stages of rigorous user testing, but also looking at your regulations and making it robust. Robust, yeah. and I think um, in, for me, when I was reading the story today, I was quite surprised um, that this didn't come up in that user testing, yes. or that they, that they didn't polish or concreted this off. Because I feel it's an obvious. Thing. It's such a good point. You read it, and and the, when you read stories like that, you think, "Oh, where did this go wrong?" Yeah. But this one, product you're like, getting where, fired. Where did yeah. this <laughs> get right? Where did this get yeah. through? Like yeah. somebody comes up to the table and says, "I have this idea," and everyone else goes, "There's nothing wrong with that," and yeah. then nothing comes up in the user testing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is crazy because actually, if you go through the Fed Reserve, you know, the ratios that they look at. I think it's either one-to-one or two-to-one in terms of exposure for normal people. Again, these aren't normal people. You know, these are unsophisticated, uh, you know, I don't want to say children, but like, you know, investors that they're actually bringing in. The point in terms of what Jasper's making here, though, which is an interesting one, from a, you know, looking over the 
whether it was QA or whatever else in terms of when this was actually flagged, you know, supposedly flagged last week. Now, from the SEC perspective, you know, if a bug happens and you can actually show that you've gone, you've taken action to it, you know, they, they spent all weekend sorting out that actually stopped it at source. If the Reddit articles, you know, if we're to believe it, you know, this has been left open. Yeah. <laughs> it's still, there was somebody who yesterday was talking about taking a position, uh, I think that was the, the same one in terms of a million. So, like, this is still ongoing. And actually, if it's still ongoing, then actually, you know, Robin Hood's going to be on the hook for this, surely. Anyone got a US Robin Hood account in here? Yeah. <laughs> I can't test it on it. I, I, wish, no? I, I wish I had. Um, <laughs> but moving on to the UK's answer to Robin Hood. Free Trade closes a $15 million investment in Series A funding. This is a story from TechCrunch. The challenger stockbroker will use the funding for growth and product development. No surprises there. The round includes a $7.5 million investment from venture capital firm Draper Esprit. The company plans to double down on engineering hires and expand into Europe next year. None of this um, particularly challenging other than in light of what we just discussed, but also the fact that... Uh, the move comes uh, just at the same time as competitor Robinhood prepares for a UK launch and Revolut is launching a fee-free stock investment option. And interestingly, Free Trade CTO and co-founder has just jumped ship and joined Revolut after his contract was terminated last year. So a lot of moving parts, a lot of competition, whether what just happened with Robinhood will affect their expansion plans, um, God knows. But how would you feel if you were f- sitting in Free Trade's offices right now? I'd be a bit relieved, to be honest with you. Like yeah. looking at this situation in terms of the the firepower that Robin Hood has, like this is a huge, you know, knock for them. You know, this is for for them really. It should be code red, lock everything down from the FCA perspective. Even though they gave them the green light to come over, I think they're going to start scrutinising that for mm. some time. So I can't see that being, you know, just a, an easy step over for them. Um, at the same time, you know, it does take out another major competitor who could have taken out a lot of the potential customers that, you know, free trade are going to be going for. And it's expensive, especially when you're going up against the likes of Revolut and their hose cannon for acquisition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they can throw money around. I mean, you'll probably see, you know, in terms yeah. of PPC and various other things. These guys have been, you know, really astute in terms of how they've gone about nurturing a grassroots uh, customer base uh, from th- over the last three years. And I have to commend them for that. And they've done a fantastic job. So, you know, hopefully this gives them some breathing space. And on free trade itself, I, I kind of, I really love free trade, how they've actually gone to the market mm. and how they've uh, built that community. Um, and I think, uh, I think the head of community came from 11FS, right? They work for, he works for free, he worked for free trade for a bit. That's, yeah. that's some great LinkedIn stalking right there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, but um, so sure. how they've built that community and how engaged their community is, I think that's, it, it's, it's one of the few mm-hmm. financial brands who've been able to leverage that. And I think I really have to commend them for that. And that's where they've, I feel they've got their roots firmly in the UK. And, and, and to your point, they have spent time and energy in building that mm. community, yeah. building the narrative yeah. of democratization and access. They are very much, to Aaron's point, targeting exactly the same demographic as Robin Hood has gone after. Um, Obviously, interestingly, some of the money they have raised uh, was going to go towards marketing and an educational push anyway. It will be very interesting to see how they play on the Robin Hood piece. Um, But the Revolut piece of competition is still very much there. How personal do you think the rivalry will get? I think there will be a personal rivalry. There is always, right, in this market. Everybody Mm. knows each other. And this is actually... 
It's actually good. I think it would be kind of making it interesting, right? But I think on the other side, I think free trade also has an opportunity because if you think what happened with Robinhood, but also what happened with Revolut, right, from a compliance, this is all under compliance and, you know, controls. I think they have a great opportunity to position themselves as the alternative. The, the, the people that do it right and already have a strong community, they've done already a great positioning. So almost I would double down if it was them. I'm just saying, okay, let's just go for it and be the ones that do things properly. Well, yeah. to Francesca's point, like we yeah. have extremely poor memories in this industry, right? And no. not to not to make a <laughs> comment on millennials. Actually, I, you're the only millennial on the table, so like you. <laughs> Representing. You're around the table. Um <laughs> Short memories. D- digital consumers tend to have short memories. What do you say? Financial services. Who are yeah. you? Financial <laughs> yeah. services consumers tend to have short memories. We don't forgive as much as we forget. So t- to your point, Francesca, it is an obvious marketing narrative that yes. not only do we say the same stuff as these guys, but we believe it. But part of it would entail reminding consumers what that happened? this happened. Exactly. And, and this didn't happen here. So actually going for a, an aggressive marketing campaign um, – to to claim this space is is an opportunity, mm-hmm. and obviously they've raised considerable amounts of cash to do it. But if you look at the money that both Robinhood and Revolut have have raised in the past, this is not in the same league. It's yeah. not, and it, and no, I, I not. think just on the acquisition kind of perspective, you know, going toe to toe with Revolut, I would I would not I would not go do. You know, this is yeah. David versus Goliath situation. You got to outsmart them. You know, you, you got to outwork them. You know, you got to sweat every pound you've got far better than Revolut do. So actually, when you, when it comes to down to acquisition, absolutely nail the narrative, own that positioning within the market. But then on the flip side of that, you know, you want to acquire customers for free. So as much as you know, everything they're going to be talking about is very educational. It's also going to support their SEO strength. Yeah, you know, and they'll be looking to get themselves skyrocketing at the top of Google so that they can actually clean up potential uh, customers coming through that route. And hey, look, David versus Goliath is what like this her. entire space has been about. So yeah. we've seen it work. It can happen again. Yeah. Yes, I think when it comes to uh, something like free trade and I've been looking at their proposition and the way they position themselves mm. in the market, um, guys, it's a very big pie. If they mm. take one yeah. sm- small slice That's of it, they, it, they're going to do very well. And it's all about differentiation and, and the way you put your, uh, of your proposition in the market. Revolut, free trade, for me, there are two different uh, propositions, two different products. And I think that's when customers are being exposed to that um, will choose the one they are most familiar with. But absolutely agree, David and Goliath, but they're very clever ways to go about that. They're also actually positioned slightly differently in terms of uh, pricing perspective, which I think is probably why they're a lot more appealing to the younger audience. So in terms of free trade, um, it is commission-free. It's a free account. And please correct me if I'm wrong here, but when it comes to Revolut, you know, it's twelve ninety nine for their Metal account, and that's the only access you get for free fee free um, trading. That's it. So again, yeah. it's 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 they might change that at some point and open it up, um, and that might change the game. But hopefully, it gives them a, a chance to go out and acquire some more customers. But to to the point we made on the show. I think I'm the only person who didn't get excited by the bloody metal card, if if you remember. Um, and and they are playing to a captive audience because if you've already activated that, then then it is free. Uh, but you're very right; it might be going after a different um, a, a different um, segment of the market. We will soon see. I'm gonna I'm gonna move us on. The next story comes from Aptopia Sifted. 
digital banks grow as fintech funding slows. This was almost like a line from a song. Research from Optopia says that downloads of the top digital banking apps have grown 209% over the past six quarters. Yet European fintechs only raised, only raised 233 million euros in October compared to $420 million in September, according to Sifted. The dip is an anomaly as 2019 has been Europe's biggest year for fintech funding so far. So what? So, in fact, actually, something to um, to add to this. I think yesterday there were stats that came out in terms of, in the UK anyway, of how many, um, it's the current accounts uh, stats in terms of how many people are switching and how many people are mm. on. Top two at the moment, Monzo, 13,000 a month, I think it was, or 13,000 net. Um, Triodos is second, digital bank ethical only. Really, really interesting. So the top, you know, three, four places are solely digital banks. Um, so I think, you know, that the first point that you said in terms of 209% growth over the last six quarters, all the research that we've done on every proposition we've, you know, we've built over the last sort of two, three years indicates that that's that's going no, nowhere but up. Uh, and, and interestingly, to, to to give some of that color to our to our listeners, the the report says that Monzo owns more than half of the digital banking market in the UK. Revolut, Starling, and N twenty six are all growing, but Revolut and Starling are potentially losing market share. N twenty six monthly active users in the UK grew more than three hundred fifty percent in the past year, with Monzo following closely behind. Those numbers are big. Um, for, for those of you who have caught yeah. me on the show before, I don't get excited by funding stories because what I'm what I'm interested in seeing these businesses, any of our businesses, becoming profitable and, yeah. and standalone. Yeah, exactly. So, is it really bad news that the funding didn't go up as expected? For me, it. I don't. I don't. I. I wouldn't connect the two dots together. For me, it's more about. I would love to see. Uh, engagement numbers of the banks coming out because this is not a story about um, size. This is about what you do with it, right? It's about engagement of the customers. C- can this be what we call yes, this but, episode? Wow. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. You went there. Right. Okay. Oh, <laughs> can he also come back, please? Yeah. <laughs> We've hit the trough. <laughs> like, for example, we, we work with Starling yeah. for the last yeah. two years. And so we, we have a bit of a look in their kitchen in terms of their customer engagement. And that is very exciting to see what's happening in the last few months where we can definitely see the number of people, uh, in, in our case, um, uh, using uh, the, having their pension be in the Starling app. That's gone up. Like, that's quite a big percentage of our customers now do that. That's the stuff I get excited about. Yeah, I think and is that because of the way they've developed the product and put their investments in, that's what's count, count for me. Users, what's a user? Like, yeah. I think the um, how, uh, how digital, well it seems to be how digital banks value uh, active rates uh, and how they put actually the, I suppose, parameters around that differs massively from, let's say, tier ones. Tier ones, it's like you log in once in three to six months, you're active, whereas challenges are sort of a lot more aggressive than that. Um, But aggressive, but also have got a lot higher percentage of people either returning to the app, logging in twice, whatever it might be. Uh, And we've seen that from stats that has been published like time and time again. So it shows that, you know, the the activity around challenges at the moment is, is in theory a lot higher. So here it is. Daily active users, right? Absolutely, you know, it's a it's a great stat to track. 
But the one that isn't in that report there is actually how many of them are actually making it in the main current yeah. account. Yeah, and That's and that for me is like the, the key thing that it's great to you know switch over or have multiple different accounts, and you know we've all got them. You know, you open up any wallet. Yeah. I guarantee all of us have got three or four in there. You know, but well, ultimately, I think we all have all of them. All yes. of them. <laughs> yes. Right, speak for yourself. <laughs> anyway, we are friends with everybody. Friends with everybody. The point being here, though, is like how many of them are actually turn them over to full accounts. And actually, if you look at the user growth, it's incredible in terms of the user growth that Monzo has achieved in the UK. Whilst Revolut has gone global, have gone to take the market. Uh, then looking back in terms of the UK, I'd, I'd love to see from from that graph, from the data, actually, how does that break down in terms of current account holders, in terms of the, making it the main current account with a salary going into? Yeah, and, well, and, and high value activity, because yeah. you could mm. have your salary going in there and deposits are valuable to these banks, but uh, an incumbent high street bank probably wants you to take the deposit away because it can't do much with it and have the high value transactions on top. So if, say, as a lot of my friends are doing, your salary still goes to your the bank but, that your yeah. mum and dad opened for you, yeah, but all your FX is turned through Starling these days, increasingly. Yep, and all your direct debits and all your your payments come out of your your Monzo Starling Revolut world. They actually capture high value transactions, even though they're not necessarily your primary account. This is a massive but, trend now. Um, you have this this concept of the splurge account. So over twelve million people now in the UK are multi banked, and generally a very high percentage of that multi banked with a challenger. That's massively different to what it was maybe even five years ago. Well, certainly five years ago. I'd probably go three years ago on that. So it's um, it shows the sh- that the trend in the UK is to become multi banked. It's not necessary to move over your salary, and the importance of doing that, as long as you set up obviously the right parameters in the challenger bank, isn't even necessarily there. So you're getting over that hump that everybody. Um, was so fixated about, certainly in big banks, which is, you know, CAS isn't working and, oh my word, you've got to sw- switch this and you've got to move over all your debit details and all this sort of stuff. All that's kind of going away because of open banking and because of easier ways to move money. Um, and I think that trend is only going to help challenges get more and more um, customer acquisition. It's only going to help get them more and more traction. The the one thing just in terms of this story, though, it's something that we haven't actually picked up on, new bank. So the interesting thing, if, if you actually look through all of that, Newbank had more downloads than Revolut, Monzo, and N26 combined. Big place. It's yeah. a big, big place. place. That's, that's a Sequoia yeah, yeah. type market, though. That's, that got, like, yeah. that's got influences yeah. on it that just outstrip everything else. They do. But, and again, the, the, the needs are very, very different you know, in terms of looking over, in terms of we talk about underserved, underbanked, you know, underbanked. They don't have a facility over in Europe. It's a very different kind of situation. You know, we are, if anything, perhaps at times overbanked, but poorly served. You know, mm, that's it. So, yeah. and, and again, kind of the saturation in terms of the market. So it's just interesting when you look at all the players, they're all going over, looking at the States as the next big uh, opportunity and, you know, Latin America, they're kind of leaving for them to go uh, soak up. Yeah. Although the States are a really difficult, different place, right? It's not easy. So let's see. We'll I see imagine. what happens. Yeah, but, Very true. But a, Very true. Yeah. But everything yeah. we're saying is that the, the health for success of all of these uh, yeah. businesses is not necessarily investment money going up, no, um, which I totally agree with, but it it robs me of the ability to say, is this terrible downturn because of Brexit, as oh. is everything else? I went yeah, there. Like, come on. Yeah. It's election now. It's not Brexit anymore. <laughs> it's still, Brexit's it's, finished. It's still there. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. Oh, it's nice and cheery. <laughs> we'll be back very shortly. Let's take a quick break while you hear from our sponsors. Today... Customers are demanding greater value from financial services. 
they expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. If you're heading to ZeroCon this year in London's Excel, we will be putting on another Fintech Insider live on the exhibition hall stage. Zero are trusting us to wrap up day one of the conference in style with a live show announcing all the fintech partnerships from the event and also the return of the FN debate. If you're at the conference, you don't want to miss it. It's the 13th of November at London's Excel. If you can't be there, like myself, freezing in lovely Oslo, stay tuned for the show coming soon to this podcast. All right, let's get on with this show. The next story is very close to my heart. It comes from Finextra. Westpac announces a banking-as-a-service partnership. The Australian bank will take a minority stake in 10x Future Technologies as it preps a new digital brand for a 2020 launch. Westpac announced the investment alongside a disappointing annual result, which included a 15% fall in cash profits. The banking-as-a-service platform will be separate from Westpac's uh, core banking platform, and it will allow Westpac's partner to use its banking license and sell the bank's products. What do we think of this? I think it's about what's happening to banking, because at the end it's about, you know, this is, core banking is the core of the banking system and they need somebody else to do it. That's a big question mark. I still don't understand this partnership, how that works, but I mean... It's. Um, I think it, it raises a lot of questions. Why right? a bank that is kind of struggling, um, declining revenues and profits, and then needed to partner with somebody in the UK to do the core banking product. So, the question is, what is their core business then, right? But this is happening more and more, and it actually highlights, I think, what is the core problem of banking, which is core banking, right? Is all they're stuck, right? And the only way is to do it. It's easier to do it externally than than kind of to. So transform I, something that is stuck internally. I both internally. agree and disagree with what you said. Um, yeah. and, and obviously this is what I do for a living, so I should probably not say anything. But hey, I'm in the chair, so I will. <laughs> watch it, um, watch it. You should. I know. I totally agree with the fact that this shows the, the challenge that banks are going through. I actually don't think that delivering core banking capabilities should be core to the business. I think if you do it well, it's plumbing and it's mm. an essential condition, but you can you can do it with a partner. I don't have an issue with that at all. It, there are two things there. One is something you hinted at. If you know what your core differentiator is, then outsourcing the plumbing, not a problem. If you don't, you still don't know what to put on top of the plumbing. So you can have the best plumbing in the world. You're still not going to solve the problem. For me, the thing that is always a a flag when I read these things because this is the space I work in and, and, and it, it, I always lose sleep over it is if you don't bring it back to the core business the transformational impact will be limited to whatever it is you choose to do on top of it so it doesn't solve your fundamental problem if you don't bring it back to your fundamental business or your fundamental customer base that you That's already right. have. That's right. um, Unless there is a view to hmm. eventually migrate everyone and everything, which 
there's no indication of. Looking at the actual article itself, and your point exactly later in terms of actually the, the core infrastructure point, from from what I can see, you know, they're talking about launching something towards the end of 2020, and it's specifically to help enableize fintech partners and some institutional customers uh, better work with Westpac. So, again, how deep-rooted this is, or is this on the peripheral? I, I'm not entirely sure. Oh, it smells of the wider trend of marketplace to me. There's something, you know, rising yeah. up from the ashes. Uh, we get this a lot. So we get a lot of um, companies that that are obviously interested in foundry, but then also just interested in consultancy services around this. So it's how can we go quicker, faster, build new propositions, partner up um, with other fintechs, with other um, with other companies that have created products that seemingly would be infeasible for big organisations like Westpac to do in certain timescales. Um, and I think, you know, the, the wider bit on this is what, what's really interesting is this is kind of linked to, certainly in the show notes to technology costs being driven by 174 million year on year. I don't even necessarily think that's that's a factor. I think it's an, an influence. It's like a metric. But ultimately, it's a wider point that... Um, you know, core banking infrastructure needs to change. And if you still sit on the same rails that you sat on 20, 30 years ago, you are starting to lose your competitive advantage, chipping away at that competitive advantage. Quite, but the magic word in that is core. So if you Mm. change the core banking capability, not at the core, have you actually impacted anything to the effect you need to? And we have seen, particularly retail banking in the UK, um, came to the table much more actively because the challengers really gave them them a kick. To what extent do you think this is Westpac realizing that Australian fintech activity had mm. been slow, but all of a sudden, Zinja, um, H6400, Vault are mm. really coming to the table really dynamically. So what happened here of two years ago is happening in a really accelerated fashion out there. Could this be their way of saying, yeah, we yeah. might as well? well kind of, kind of. Um, I feel if they really want to address this, they should address their core. Uh, their core brand, their core, their core banking uh, platform. This for me feels like, and you guys are more of the expert than I am. For me, this feels like a side hustle, like something on the side. You know, we think this might be something really, really yeah. profound. Let's just create something on the side and, you know, let's just muddle on. Yeah. That's that, how I read this. Yeah, and I definitely agree to that point um, in terms of it doesn't look like a core overhaul. Um the weird thing is actually if you look in terms of the UK to your point before when you're talking about uh you know the uh the the CMA9 you know trying to keep up with the challenger banks coming through you know how have they gone about it you know some of them have actually gone partner with some of the actual challenger banks vast majority have then actually cut off and actually built out flanker brands you know so standalone technology stacks to go after the market and actually go after discrete parts of the customer base prove it works protect the actual core brand and then build out this doesn't seem to be doing that. You know, this seems to be trying to actually allow some of them in via, you know, the kind of API open banking kind of philosophy yeah. that's going to be coming into Australia very soon. But it doesn't seem to be actually addressing the core problem of the bank yeah. itself. I, I well, totally yeah. agree with that. And yet you have to wonder whether what you described is a door that stays open with this. Fired be for me to defend the competition here. But um, you're right. It doesn't come to the core but I think I think if we look at things for a moment, so I agree. I think it feels like a bet or like an option, opening an option, see what happens. That's how I read this. Also, knowing a little bit what Telex is doing. But I think um, I ended up spending a lot of time in banking before, right? And I can kind of resonate. It resonates a bit one thing. So 
if you look at things or what's happening with the eyes of the big banks, fundamentally you, your hurdle, and also when we talk to banks, for example, their problem is right now, all these things that we do in a hype link today now in the fintech space, like API integrations and you know modular you know, iterations and UX optimizations, they cannot do it. So the problem is when, if we go to a bank now, I don't know, we're a lender and we could say, why don't we integrate into an API thing? It's a big deal. So they cannot do it. And they cannot do it because of this core banking system problem, which is two things. Is One is the platform is is a patchwork. So fundamentally 10,000 databases that don't talk to each other in data. Data is a big, big problem. They don't have a view of who their customers are and all the data are not connected. So the problem is if you want to start if you are feeling the pressure, which I agree with you completely, they're probably feeling the pressure of all these changes happening outside, and you're like, oh my gosh, what can we do? There is no way you can fix your system. It feels like you say, okay, let's experiment a bit. Let's see whether these guys with this new core banking system can integrate with APIs and all that, and then we decide what to do. But I think that's where the problem is coming from. Right? That's right. You're absolutely right. It's it's risk hedging. We know that core banking transformations have historically been extremely expensive, yeah. have gone on for much longer than they should have done, ended the careers of CTOs. <laughs> uh, but fundamentally, playing on the oh. fringes doesn't transform the core people. Anyway, before I get <laughs> on my soapbox, I will move us on. The next story is from Finextra. Goldman Sachs leads a $50 million round for a credit card platform, because we don't have any of those. The investment bank contributed Series C funding to Deserve, a credit card startup for young people. So not me. Deserve is developing a card-as-a-service platform that helps brands create credit card products tailored to their customer base. Its competitors include Synchrony and Alliance Data. The company's credit platform promises the ability to set up a program in 90 days. It uses machine learning and other data sources, uh, to underwrite a larger population, specifically those who are new to credit. So this news comes as young consumers are increasingly avoiding credit cards. Less than 5% of U.S. consumers who carry credit card debt were born in or after 1995. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> These consumers are turning to credit cards as they enter the market, but they lack credit histories, which makes it difficult for them to qualify. So it's not that they're avoiding them, it's just that they can't get them. Hence the partnership kind of the partnership model definitely makes sense. Um, my, I mean, I was looking at the numbers. I mean, first of all, is it clear in terms of is, is that fifty million? Is it pure investment into the business in terms of equity, or or is that kind of also a credit mm. line as well? I, I can't seem to work that out because again, with some of these larger numbers, like you know, you will see quite a big split between the two. Of a clawback. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, even still, it's it's still a it's a formidable amount to be putting into them. This place, the space at the moment, especially in the states, is incredibly hot, and I think you've seen quite a lot of VC money go into this kind of um, bass cast service space. Um, and really, what what you're looking at is is kind of funding uh, many different propositions, which don't necessarily. Uh, or aren't instigated even from the bank, but it's kind of, or from the banks, but it's kind of like, uh, you know, for instance, X and Y's got a concert on and they want to create an app and they want to put, you know, a payments or credit flow through that. Mm. And that, I think, is is resonating more and more in the States as a use case, which is why, you know, if you can put as a service on whatever the the, the prefix is, then, um, you know, then you've got something which is instantly attractive because of its scale to VCs. It's true, but on the back of what we talked about Robin Hood earlier mm. today and, and the morality of what we do when we come to mm. work, given that U.S. credit card debt is at an all-time high, 
is it a good idea to be tailoring products to young people who might not be mature users, mm -hmm. who are well, not meeting the credit rating requirements of a market that's already not serving its customers um, well? It's, it's a worrying <laughs> sign that it's actually Goldman Sachs who've made the, uh, the call to move into it. And everybody questioned in terms of were they late to go into the market with markets, you know, or, or do they hold back and oh. actually just step in at the right point? You know, this is another big, bold move, unfortunately. Do they look at it from that evangelical kind of element of, you know, let's try and promote financial literacy amongst these, let's try and actually help them? Uh, I suspect not. Unfortunately, I don't think so. <laughs> Come on. So no, I think it's actually part of Goldman's move to move into retail market. It's yeah. probably in the forest the pressure, and they say, well, what's in the retail market is going bank account and credit cards, right? So, yeah. but I agree that there are some risks with that because young people in the US. AI to assess underwriting, you know, the career history, that's kind of it does worry, yeah. an interesting combination. But you, you're raising a very interesting yeah. point because as we're looking at mm. um, incumbent banks really struggle with redefining their core proposition where they really make their money, where they have brand permission and, and really struggling to revamp those systems and capabilities to stay competitive. We've seen Goldman Sachs consistently step into Greenfield for them. I have to say they've done a great job on that, yeah. With Marcus, with this, yeah. with a, yeah. another of other things that were a big splash and then we heard nothing of them. They have managed to do some very successful, some less so plays outside their core business. And I want to say with zero research on this, but just off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Foolproof. Hannah's like really Googling. Um, this could be cut, but we'll see where it yes. goes. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to go with off the top of my head. They are the most successful yes. incumbent in managing to create new revenue streams yes. without really cannibalizing their core. And in fact, without doing anything particularly exciting other than, oh, I don't know, symphony. In, yeah. in their core business. They're now, that, that is also because yeah. that side of banking hasn't really jazzed itself up yet. But yeah. Well, I have to say on this, um, and I'm a supporter of go, go, Goldman's doing because um, I think they've done a great job. You know, post-crisis, fundamentally, many banks struggle to see the new world and to pivot into a new model. I mean, the model is fundamentally broken. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you from the inside that many banks struggle to recognize that. And... And actually, what Goldman has done, they're very strategic. They fundamentally just do the math, look at data, and say, that's where we need to go. And they execute it brilliantly on that. Mm -hmm. Nobody else has done it. And in fact, the problem is the European banks have not done it. And mm -hmm. they're in this denial phase. Oh, no, 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 everything will go back to usual. And we see where some of these banks are today. So I think I'm a big fan of what Goldman has done because when you have an organization like this and you're able to kind of move an oil tank like at the speed of a, you know, of a kind of fast board, that is kind of impressive. So it's very clear, if, you know, Goldman made money from fixed income and all these kind of very fancy businesses where they are kind of dead right now. And they were able to quickly move and move into retail, get deposit, get liquidity, stabilize the position. So let's see what happens with credit cards. I'm a less of a big fan on that, but, you know. Very good a, point, though. I couldn't disagree with the word yeah. you said. I think for me, the, the Goldman uh, brand, I think it's one of the few examples of successfully turning, I would say, a bad, bad bank into something <laughs> a little bit more friendly. Um, if, you look at the, if you look at the proposition of Deserve, and I've had a look at mm. it today, for me, it comes across as actually a really useful service for people who need to build that credit score. And actually looking at the rates, the credit card charges is actually quite a reasonable rate. Um, 
why Goldman? I thought it was a really uh, awkward yeah, uh, yeah. combination. But then again, if you look at markets, they've done the same. So they've turned it from this bad, bad bank into something that I feel feels much more approachable and friendly but isn't as that a consumer. A, uh, but isn't that a magic thing? I mean, from a marketing point of view, you're the expert here. I mean, that's incredible. Like Goldman was the kind of the brand that everybody would hate, right? Yeah. Mm. I mean, after crisis and all that. And now they've managed to build this brands yeah. that are so familiar and so close to the underserved. It's one I of think the, they played yeah. it's incredible. I, my genuine worry in terms of yeah. Goldman's in this space is specifically the turnover in terms of cash, the short periods and leverage that they can get and the actual margins that they can charge. You know, the, the yeah. problem is that it's a credit card is one of the lowest entry points for any consumer to go into. And like literally as soon as you're in there, you start to see the amounts creep up, creep up, creep yeah, up, creep up. Mm. I'm, I'm telling you now, I'm, I'm genuinely concerned. I, 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 from an outside perspective in terms of the front end, I'm sure it looks great and it <laughs> means well and they've, you know, they've branded the shit out of it. Um, but my suspicion is very different. <laughs> there is no, no way well, that's that... that's what I'm here for, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just applying you the You are the marketeer here. <laughs> I'm just they applying the to, They have just lowered their interest rate on Marcus. They I did? Really? Yeah, it's down from 1.5 to 1.45. Oh, come on. Yeah. That's not... Uh, so the, Disaster. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I will say just um, on the Goldman Love, yeah. uh, <laughs> the loving of, of about a minute and a half ago, I will say about five years ago, if you were working in the industry in London, um, there was all these new job descriptions that were coming out of Goldman, and it was all for basically people who mm. you know could build financial propositions or whatever else. And they those job descriptions, when you looked at them, were absolutely spot on. So I don't know who wrote them, but they were phenomenal. <laughs> they were taking actually some of the best talent from consultancies and from other banks. And I think the use case or the use cases that they were concentrating on and the noise coming out of Goldman uh, was starting to actually put it on sort of a pedestal as being, you know, basically an incumbent that has embraced digital change and obviously was looking into Mm. a different sector in retail. Uh, And we almost, like we do now, sort of hang it up as, you know, sort of the the poster boy, if you like, of getting into, you know, Mm. diversifying revenue into a new And 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 look, if if we want to eat our own dog food, right, we, we talk about taking a long, hard look at your business, capability and profitability and and making the choices you have to make. Goldman were seen as the definition of a very greedy era of of banking. I I, I don't think there's any any going back from that. But they've gotten on with the times, right? And they've redefined both their their business and their image. And if we're going to, I can't believe I'm about to say this and it's recorded, it's going to go out in public. But if we're going to hold one example up as having tackle those hard questions with a profitability mindset and and some some hard decisions made without compromising the yeah. old business it's them so you know they are continuing to do what they used to exceptionally well right moving on this is a story from this is money M&S teams, um, sorry, M&S, M&S, Marks and Spencers, M&S. Marks and Spencers. I cannot, I didn't expect to have to talk about M&S in here, but here we are. M&S teams with clear pay on buy now, pay later option. Hold on a second, I think I've heard that one before. Marks and Spencers have teamed with ClearPay to offer a six-week interest-free payment plan set to launch in mid-November, at first applying only to clothing and home products. Online shoppers will soon be able to pay for purchases over £30 in four instalments. ClearPay offers similar programs through Urban Outfitters, Boohoo and more. Its competitors obviously include Klarna, Afterpay and Layby. So, how do you think they stack up against their competitors? It's it's interesting in terms of Klarna versus M&S in this kind of instance. Are they going after 
the same kind of consumers. Uh, you know, if you look at the branded in terms of Klarna and the partnership with H&M, you know, it, it does seem a little bit more in terms of the Gen Zers, the, the millennials. Um, if, you know, personally, kind of, if I'm, if I'm honest with this one, as much as I understand the need for frictionless finance, and I'm, you know, a huge advocate of uh, creating that the right situation, especially if you're talking about more kind of uh, sole traders, small business owners, uh, you know, where they, they need to release some capital so that they can actually fuel up their Uber car or whatever else it might be. In a situation where it's an empty basket syndrome, yeah, and we're coming up to quite a critical time of the year where we're talking about, you know, the festive period. You know, we're talking about MS. Mm. You know, we're talking about putting the, you know, the whatever presence it is for loved ones under trees. And my worry is more around the misuse um, and the financial well-being of individuals. And I guess the other kind of side of this is we talked before about the change in habits of uh, UK consumers and that kind of, I mean, I know that we'll be in our own little bubble here, you know, with all of the cards, as, as you said before. All of the cards. All of the cards. But there is still the expectation that actually everybody does have a second or third account. Now, you know, what I'm really curious of is is more so with the credit bureaus that are out there, how are they actually spotting potential, you know, loan stacking instantaneously within a, a short period of time of people taking out multiple of these, uh, what, what are essentially loans, and actually getting themselves into debt that they can't get themselves out of. And the credit bureaus themselves, you know, they run typically on a monthly cycle. Yeah, so, but this is happening in real time. Real time. And actually, how do we better support these individuals? Uh, so I'm, I'm really concerned in terms of what it, where we are right now as an industry. And you're not the only one who's concerned, Ryan. Debt charity Step Change criticized the program quite heavily with a spokesperson saying, and I quote, if we want to reduce the risk of people inadvertently taking on unaffordable financial commitments, borrowing should not just be a byproduct of marketing to support the sale of retail products. So what looks like a funky and sexy fintech partnership from the point of view of financial literacy mm. and um, the dangerous acquisition of debt by vulnerable people, listening to what you said, reading this comment, it looks like a predatory move. Mm. Do you think it was a mistake? Well, I think they. I think from Mark and, Marks and Spencer's perspective, they're um, straying out of finance slightly, but their uh, their sales have gone down massively. I think over the last twelve months. So I think from their perspective, they'll probably have done put two and two together, looked at the customer acquisition and you know the amount of uh, sales they can possibly get from introducing these types of and and just gone for it. But it's um, a good point, but Adam and and, and let me you know, th- throw the sort of enhancer in there. You're right. M&S are trying to do fintech, right? We've seen this mm. before. But with Klarna, their user base are cash-strapped millennials. Mm. And this is not true of M&S, right? Do their uh, customers even need yeah. this? Well, yeah, but the question, let's ask the one uh, millennial around the table if he shops oh. at m oh. <laughs> oh, no, Adam, you're a millennial uh, too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, but isn't that a broader problem? Because I think we are looking at this from a point of view of are they trying to get into fintech? But maybe that's not, I, I don't think that's how they're thinking. They're just trying to grow their sales. Yeah, There's a yeah. huge yeah. things happening out there, which, which probably is not really what we focus on, which is what's happening to retailers, right? And we know what's happening to retailers. With all this Amazon and all the other things happening digital, there are a lot of retailers that are in a very tough position right now, a lot of them out of business. So the question is, that pressure is it, a result of that pressure, you know, effectively, I think there's a way to, to do whatever it takes to just sell more. So the real question is, 
is it justified? And what, what are the limits? What are the boundaries? How do you control that? Because there is a really a lot yeah. of pressure now on retailers. Marks and Spence has two problems. They yeah. don't attract a young audience. Yeah. Mm. And this is a pro- I think by Perfect. offering this, they can attract a young audience. Two, their food business is doing all right, mm. but it's their clothing and their homeware. That's it's the awesome. issue. This only applies to clothing and homeware. It's exactly the issue for years where they've seen declining sales and marketing bosses and the, the people who are designing the clothes, they've been replaced uh, in mm. a revolving door. So I think that is the problem. Um, and the high street is in a survival mode. Modica exactly. just went bust this week. Um, and if you're in that yeah. position, what would you do if you can increase your revenue streams by attracting a younger audience by offering this kind of uh, 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 payment option? I think they just go for it right now. Absolutely. Um, I'll tell you what I haven't seen, which uh, to your point, which uh, would be really interesting to know is uh, the direct customer acquisition that you get or the direct uh, amount of sales which are actually completed off the back of having this. There's obviously science behind it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be worth $4 billion, but it'll be interesting to know exactly what that science Adam, is. Oh, come on. You're in luck. Oh, look at this. <laughs> I got you back. <laughs> Cheers, man. <laughs> so if you actually go to the Klarna website, they actually claim that retailers gain a 58% increase in average order value for shoppers using uh, their sliced product and a 30% increase in terms of uh, high conversions at checkout by shoppers <laughs> using it. That so sounds like go. a £4 billion pound business to me. Mm. Man, what yeah. was it, dollar? Well, Adam, it is <laughs> your thing. lucky day. <laughs> and finally... Let's see if I can get through an end finally story without actually cracking up. The London Mint will give out historic threepence pieces for free. This is a story from The Telegraph. 120,000 King George threepences from 1911 will be offered. The campaign aims to get younger generations, that's you, Ryan, interested (laughs) in coin collecting. Collectors can currently buy the coin for £8.50. Bargain. Oh, my God. So the giveaway will be worth more than a million pounds in total. What a giveaway. Oh, wow. See, young people are interested. It is a success already. The threepence is one of Britain's longest-serving coins. It's been in circulation since 1551. Can I just say, every... Every fintech insider I do, <laughs> the and finally always involves the Royal Mint. They're always doing something really weird. It happened on the last show I was on, like two weeks ago. Yeah, Hannah's producer Hannah's nodding. Um, they're doing some weird stuff. So, so, so only just millennial Adam. Are you oh, keen? Yes. I mean, uh, yeah. Okay, show <laughs> of hands. I have two millennials around the table, and. Three sub millennials producing this. Show of hands, how many of you care? Hand up if you want one of okay, these. Okay, I'm, I'm going to. Like zero. I've got hold zero. On, hold I've on. got hold zero. Hold. I look at £8.50. I think hold the two on. beers I can buy for that. I would. I, the only thing I'd come in. I don't know where you're buying your beers, by the way. It ain't in London. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, with that, maybe with that coin, you might be able to. <laughs> right. The th- maybe it's nostalgic, okay? Uh, but if I think back to coin collecting. <laughs> oh, here we go. Jasper's loving it. Just going to get filing out. Jasper is playing his little no, violin. So, so I remember being a kid and, you know, well, I did coin collections with my granddad. He was a historian and for me, I couldn't be less interested in history. But actually, it was a great way to, from a family perspective in terms of bringing two, like, well, 
very different generations together to talk about it and bring that to life. And I don't think, maybe I'm the only one, but I think kind of coin collections... Well, actually, what, what, our founder yeah, and CEO, say, David Riggs, is, uh, is also <laughs> with you. He slacked the group today saying, I used to collect coins when I was a kid and I have about 60Ks worth wow. of them still. Coin collections are cool, people. Wow. Meanwhile, you and Silver, aptly named... Our um, CTO said, <laughs> this is real legacy banking, mate. <laughs> wow. That's what's that's what's coin collection going to be like when we talk about digital currencies in like but I that's, don't know, that's a century? All money, all money is going to be hobby horse coin collection because yeah. everything is cashless these days. It would be the antique. would be even more valuable in the, in the future. Uh, so it would be, be the Bitcoin codes. I know. Imagine the word in. That's what it will be. It will be like the pieces I'm, of paper with the codes I'm just thinking it. about like having my kind of, you know, my, my grandson on my knee and basically showing him, you know, ether back in the day and like what it kind of looked like. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah, oh, you won't believe yeah, it. These, these hipsters coins. down in Shoreditch. <laughs> <laughs> the first time they took this oh. as basically payment for my macchiato. I don't know. Like, is that how we're going to tell history? But on a a, a not serious note at all, actually, um, we mock the banks Mm. mercilessly for trying to to jazz up what they currently do in a way that is pointless and only relevant to them. Is that what the Mint is doing? Mm. Hmm. Now you're making it serious again. This is what I do. I bring the tone Um, down to like... I I can't get above the point that David's got 60K worth of coins. Like is that is that true? He He's has, minted. I, I, oh. Oh. oh, come on! <laughs> that was off the cuff. That though. was beautiful. That was very that good. That was beautiful. The mint is looking around them, mm. going, "Every sandwich shop in the city has gone cashless. Um, every busker in the tube has like a card reader." <laughs> well, I might, I might as well go into the sort of curio production business. Discuss yeah. after you. Wow, it's interesting. I, I, is it not like for me? It's final. Final records these days are quite cool, right? Like there's a whole thing around uh, final. It's all making a revival. Yeah, money was, and vinyl. So I would say that was written off, but actually it's coming back. So maybe it will same will happen with coins. I don't know. I, I collect coins. What's wrong with coins? The next thing hipsters will do wow, is insist they pay with money. Oh, yeah. like, right. After fixie bikes and oatmeal lattes, mm. it's coins. It's coins, yeah. there we go. So you should go buy and buy them. <laughs> this one. There, but there is, okay, one serious thing then. Um, so, so Thank you, of, Jasper. Part of my family uh, lives in Sweden. And in Sweden, everything is cashless. Yes. Like everything yeah. is done by cart. People don't like it. So this is the other thing. Really? There's a whole movement of people discussing those things that they say it's maybe gone a bit too far with just not wow. using cash anymore. It's just card, 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 card. Mm. Like even going to the bathroom at Central Station on Stockholm with a card, like no coins needed. Are we Funnily going that enough, far? I, I had this conversation in wow. Oslo last week. There were Girl Scouts selling cakes on Halloween um, for for charities and they had gone to extreme lengths the cakes looked stunning also it's cake right so it made me happy but there was the cakes looked incredible and they had these handcrafted signs for the charity mm. of their choice but of course they're, they're Girl Scouts it was they cash only coin. and you would see people walk by and the Not I don't, I don't have yeah. cash I've been going back and forth to Oslo for as long as I've had this job every other week I haven't seen Norwegian money and I didn't get a cake mm. from the Girl Scouts, which breaks my heart. So I, I hear your point. Sadly, this wraps up this 
week's new show, or Hannah is going to kill me. Thank you so much to all your guests. There's I have had a great Kim, time. We start the show with that. We end the show all, with that. All from you Lina. bring it out in me. All from it's Lina. You. <laughs> hey, look, I, I run a tight ship. What can I say? <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you all for coming. It's been amazing fun. Even you, Ryan. Thanks. <laughs> Where can people find out more about you, Ryan? Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter. So Ryan underscore EP. I'm going to be taking a break for another couple of months, uh, but I'll be back in January. So you did, you're I a digital nomad. I re- uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely off to Oz and New Zealand, so I'm, I'm not going to be oh. back too much. Should be great, but otherwise, feel free to stay in touch on there or LinkedIn, and I'll catch up in the new year. Ryan, I genuinely love you, even though I threaten to kill you all the time. Francesca, where can people find out more people about you? People can find me on LinkedIn a lot and Twitter as well, as well on our website, modelfinance.com. Perfect. Jasper, what about you? Uh, mostly on Twitter and LinkedIn, Jasper Martins, uh, or uh, pensionb.com. Fantastic. What about you, Adam? Uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, AdamD8 or 11fs.com. And as for me, I am at adleaderclyptis on Twitter or leader at 11fs.com. What did you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at fintechinsiders or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening and goodbye.